Hello and welcome to the Calvary Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us today. Whether you're listening from across the street or around the world, we pray this message will encourage you, build your faith, and bless your life. All right, well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Calvary, whether you're here in the room or watching us online on YouTube or Facebook. Uh, Our mission is pretty simple, but it aligns with what Jesus told us to do. Love God, love people, then go change your world, and so that's what we're about here at our church, and we're so glad that you're with us. Now would be a good time uh, to check in on Facebook or share the YouTube uh, video on your social media. Uh, subscribe to those, by the way. We, we, uh, we need to get past some thresholds on, on some, some of the uh, social media platforms, so you can help us do that this morning as well. You can turn to the book of Revelation since you brought your Bible today, today we're going to be a, a beginning a brand new series based on the seven customized letters that Jesus sent to seven cities, seven churches. Now, these letters begin in chapter 2. So this morning, we're going to be hanging out in Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 2. And we're calling this series, Dear Church, Dear Church, D-E-A-R, Church. Jesus writing to his bride, his church. In fact, uh, if you have a letter like mine, a red letter edition Bible, you'll notice that these letters are written in red because they are the very words of Jesus speaking directly to his church. Now, seven letters, of course, seven is the biblical number for perfection or completion, And in these seven letters, we learn and discover what God expects from us, what God expects from his church, and how we should respond accordingly. See, we believe at our church that the word of God is not just an old document. The Bible is not just an ancient document. Listen, the Bible is eternal. What we mean by that is the truths that we find in it, the principles that we find in it, the Jesus that we find in the word is eternal. It does not change. That's why 2,000 years later, when we open up the word of God, we can still find that it brings hope and peace and correction and conviction and life and joy and everything that God expects from us. Now, before we jump into this first letter, let's talk a little bit about the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the New Testament. It's appropriately placed there uh, at the end because it looks beyond its current day and looks into the future and all that God is going to accomplish at the end of time, as the end of time draws near to a conclusion. Now, as with all uh, of Scripture, Jesus plays the starring role in the book of Revelation. We're gonna see how his role plays out in the outcome of history. And in Revelation, John writes of several things. John, he first writes of a vision of a majestic court in heaven where Jesus is described as the only one who is worthy to receive blessing and honor and glory and power forever. Then he has a vision of the judgments that are yet to be unleashed on this earth. We call it the tribulation, the final seven years of this earth as we know it. And God is going to be pouring out his wrath, his judgment in three waves of judgments. We're going to see the the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. But coinciding with all the judgment, many people are going to come and acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. 
and likely at the cost of their own life. Then John goes on in the book of Revelation. He has a vision of the final conflict. Sometimes we call it the battle of Armageddon, and we see the aftermath there. And at the conclusion of that, he has the vision of the new Jerusalem descending from the heavens, and he describes the new heaven and the new earth where there will be no more sickness, no more pain, no sorrow, no crying, no mourning, no more evil ever again. It's going to be a perfect place where perfect peace abounds in the presence of Jesus. The disciple John, he is the author of the book of Revelation. This is the same John who wrote the gospel of John. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John later in the New Testament. Now, the year that he wrote this, they estimate uh, in between 90 and 96 AD. So around 60 years after Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and ascended back to the Father. And he is writing it from a place called Patmos. He is exiled to an island called Patmos. He has been exiled there as punishment for his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, all of the early disciples, they were martyrs for the sake of Jesus. They gave their life spreading the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God, and it cost them their life. They were all martyrs except for John. And that's because they tried to execute John, but he wouldn't die. Uh, there's an emperor named Domitian who tried to execute him by putting him in a cauldron of boiling oil, but John wouldn't die. In fact, there wasn't even a trace of a burn on him, kind of like the three Hebrew boys from the book of Daniel through the fiery furnace. So since that didn't work, they decided to exile him to an island called Patmos to get him to stop spreading the good news of Jesus. And so when he writes Revelation, he's at least in his 80s, all right? He's an elderly man at this point. Now, uh, just for context, life expectancy for most men there would have been in the 50s. So a man in their 80s would have been quite old, and, and most scholars think that he reached at least the age of 100. It kind of reminds me, uh, right after Easter, we had a series called Eyewitness, and we talked about some of the eyewitness accounts that Jesus had with people, about 500 of them in all, uh, over the course of the 40 days before he ascended back to, uh, to heaven. Now, one of those encounters happened on the north shore of Galilee. Remember, some of the disciples are out fishing. Jesus is on the shore making them uh, fish for breakfast. And Peter runs from the boat to Jesus and says, man, it's really you. And, and Jesus asks him, this is resurrected Jesus. He asks them, he asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, of course I love you. He does this three times. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep meaning go and tell others about me. And by the way, Peter, you're gonna to have to give your life for me. You're gonna be a martyr as you spread the gospel of the kingdom of God. And Peter was like, okay, but what about that guy? And he's pointing to John, the author of this revelation. What about John? Is he gonna die? And Jesus says, what is it to you if John stays alive until I return for my second coming? Now, of course, John did not live till his second coming, but he did. He outlived the rest of the disciples by a country mile, right? He, he lived a long time, 
after the rest of the disciples. And as John was nearing death, it was said that he only said three words. There's a story, uh, not in the Bible, but some commentators uh, tell the story that one day John is attending a church service at the church in Ephesus, a church that the apostle Paul founded, the church, by the way, that Jesus wrote the letter to that we're gonna study in just a few moments. So John is attending this service, the story goes, and they acknowledge him. I mean, can you imagine having one of the original disciples attend your church service? That'd be pretty cool. So they thought that was a pretty cool deal. They wanted to hear from John. So they said, hey, John, why don't you come up and talk to us for just a moment? What was it like to be with Jesus when he was here on this earth? To talk to him, to walk with him, to hear him, and to be around him. What was it like being with Jesus? And he walks to the front of the, of the church, and he says only these three words, love one another. It said that that's all he said toward the end of his life. Love one another, then he went and sat down. Those were the only three words that he said toward the end of his life. Now, if you'll remember, it was John's gospel account in John chapter 14, when he is documenting Jesus around the Last Supper, and he's giving his disciples final instruction. And he said, I'm giving you a new commandment, my disciples, that you will love one another. Of course, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st and 2nd John are laced with this love language. In fact, 1st John 4, 7, and 8, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love, however, does not know God because God is love. If John had a life message, it would have been love. This was his message. And this is the very person who Jesus downloads this incredible revelation that we have today. And so I like how John begins uh, his revelation. Chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Now, I've read the book of Revelation many times, but up until recently, this verse just kind of got past me, right? I just passed by real quick. Yeah, okay, you're blessed for reading the word. Of course, there's a blessing that comes with reading the Bible. But this verse, it tells us that there is a special blessing that is pronounced on those who read and hear and receive the teachings that are found in this book of prophecy, the Revelation. Now, in Revelation, there are, there are scenes, there's imagery that could cause one to be frightened and scared. I mean, we're, t- we're talking about the dragon and the beast and these judgments. But listen, revelation wasn't given to us to scare us. It was given to us to prepare us. And by understanding it, as we read and understand and follow the book of Revelation, we're blessed. Everybody say, I'm blessed. I believe that. We have some inside information given to us how this whole world thing is going to end, right? We've read the back of the book, and guess what? We win. We win. 
Reading and studying Revelation carries with it a special blessing for us. Now, in verse 4 of chapter 1, John greets the churches in what he calls the province of Asia or Asia Minor. That is modern-day Turkey, okay? This is modern-day Turkey, and you can see here on the screens the seven churches that he wrote to. These are actual places with actual churches. The first one is to Ephesus, and John is going to work his way up and to the right, okay, clockwise. He's going to start with Ephesus. Then next week we're going to look at Smyrna. And then he wrote a, a, a letter to Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and finally Laodicea. Now, interestingly, uh, Philadelphia, they actually opened up some extension campuses called Pennsylvania. Did you know that? <laughs> That's a joke. I'm kidding. Now, you don't see it there on the map. Uh, but just to the, the south and the west of Ephesus is where Patmos was located. Okay, just to the south and west of Ephesus. Now, these were significant churches. These were well-established churches. And the goal of the messages, the goal of these letters, was to challenge them, to encourage them, to warn them, and to build them up. But it's even more strategic than that because eventually these messages, these letters, would become part of our New Testament, part of the Scripture. And in the letters, Jesus reveals what he loves and he reveals what he hates. He reveals what his standards are and what he expects from his church and from his people. How many think it's pretty cool that Jesus kind of in, in advance tells us what he expects from us? I like that. It's like he gives us the answer key in advance. And because he is a consistent God, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, that means his standards have not changed in the last 2,000 years since he sent this letters, right? So his priorities and expectations then are still his priorities and expectations now. So as we study these letters over the next few weeks, we're going to see that most of these letters are three parts. They're kind of three-part letters to them. Most of the letters are going to start with a commendation. Jesus is going to tell them, you are doing really good at this. You're doing really well. But then most of the letters, not all, but most of them, he, after he encourages them, he's going to bring some correction to them. You've been doing good, but this is what you need to change. And then after he gives the correction, he brings the counsel. Now, this is how you can bring about the change that I'm asking from you. I want to counsel you into a better way. How many of you would agree that this approach is actually very loving? This is a loving approach. It's caring. It's affirming. See, today's culture says that this correction part, that's hateful. You should not tell me what to do. You don't need to correct me. If you disagree with me and how I live my life and how I make my decisions, you're a hater. You're a bigot. Therefore, to love me, to affirm me, you're going to have to go along with my behavior. You're going to have to go along with my point of view and my definition of truth, even if it's rooted in lies and delusion. Listen, that is not love. Placating to a delusion 
Watching one to continue to go down a path of destruction, down a cliff, that is not love. Especially for those of us who are parents. Listen, we can get so caught up in our children's desires and their feelings, what they're feeling in the moment, that sometimes we'll just give in to whatever they feel in the moment, to whatever their idea or their whims are. Okay, sure, we can do that. My kids, not necessarily now, but when they were younger, they would say, hey, Dad, let's watch a movie together. Okay, that's a great idea. Why don't you guys work together and go find a movie? Pick one out. Let's do that. We still have DVDs. Anybody remember those? You know, so they'd go pick out the DVDs or they'd scroll the app and, and they would try and come together on what movie we're going to watch. And inevitably, they couldn't agree on one. This one would want this movie, sister would want this one, brother would want this one, other sister that one, and they couldn't, they could not decide on what movie to watch. So they'd come, Dad, we don't know which one to watch. You're just gonna have to pick because we can't decide what movie we're gonna watch. Kids change their minds like they change their socks, right? So we're gonna let these same children decide what restroom they get to use? Help me for a moment. <laughs> we're going to let we're going to let them tell us they've decided to identify as something else and they need to tra transition. They don't have the capacity to choose a movie. <laughs> yet alone the knowledge and wisdom to make life-altering decisions. Listen, we don't let our children smoke, drink, drive, vote, serve in the military, but yet we allow them to commit permanent life-altering sterilization and surgeries because they feel like it. That is not love. Please hear me. That is not love. We're not, we're not spreading hate speech here. We're giving you truth. That is not love. That's one, yeah. That's letting one stay in their delusion. Letting them stay in their delusion and their ignorance. That's not love. And on top of that, now we have to compete with schools and culture and media that are indoctrinating them and perpetuating the lies and the delusions. But listen, love is a verb. It's more than a noun. So because I love my child, I'm going to commend them, but also because I love them, there's some correction involved, and there's some counsel involved. Hebrews 12 says that the Lord disciplines those that he loves. So these letters, they're going to contain within them commendation and correction and counsel. And as chapter one unfolds, John has this incredible vision of Jesus. And Jesus tells John, I want, you to, I want you to write down this revelation and these visions and these messages for the seven churches. And so John, in this vision, he sees seven churches and he sees seven lampstands and he sees the Son of Man, that's Jesus, walking through the lampstands. Then right at the end of chapter 1, Jesus is going to explain the symbolism of the stars and of the golden lampstands. How do we know it's Jesus? 
because they're written in red. These are the letters of Jesus. Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, this word angel that, use, that he uses here from the original Greek can be interchanged with, with messenger, okay? So the stars are the angels or the messengers that John is gonna be writing to. Now, messengers could mean an actual angel that is watching over the churches, but more than likely, these messengers are the pastors or the leaders of the lampstands. What are the lampstands? The churches. So the churches are likened to lampstands because we as the church are to what? Shine the light, right? Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And light is not to be hid, but to be placed on a lampstand for the world to see. And so that sets up and leads us to the first letter, the first message to the church of Ephesus. And this is how he goes. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. Now, angel here in Ephesus, who is the angel, who is the pastor at the church of Ephesus? Timothy is his name, okay? This is the same Timothy that the apostle Paul mentored. So Paul founded the church at Ephesus, then he handed it over to his, his son in the faith, Timothy, this is the same Timothy that Paul writes to, the first and second Timothy that we find in the New Testament as well. So he's likely writing to Timothy here, and, and he says this, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, which he has already told us what that was at the end of chapter one. So Jesus, he's beginning his message to the church of Ephesus, to Timothy, by identifying who he is. He says, of him who holds, right? So, and then he goes on, of him, that's Jesus. He's identifying himself. Listen, Jesus is intimately involved in the life of his church, right? He holds them in his right hand. And he walks among them, walks among the, the seven lampstands. Jesus is near to his church. Can I tell you that even today, Jesus is still walking among his church. He has not left us alone. He is with us. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. And because of that, he can say the following in verse 2. Now this part, this begins the commendation. Okay, so he goes on. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake. Bearing up, that just means working, laboring. Laboring for my namesake. And you have not grown weary. So he begins his letter by recognizing them for all these good things that this church has been doing. They've worked hard, they've been patient, they've rejected sin, they've discerned and rejected false prophets and false teachings, and they've done it all without growing weary. 
Good job, church. Let's talk about Ephesus for a moment. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the known world at that time. There were trade routes there, uh, both land and sea. Uh, there were thriving marketplaces there. Large theater, large stadium, kind of like the one you see here on the screen that could seat tens of thousands of people. It was a very influential city. But it was also a very unrighteous, a very immoral city. In fact, in this city, there was a temple that was erected that was built to the dedication of Artemis, the goddess of fertility. In fact, this temple was so impressive that it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And there were thousands of temple prostitutes that would hang out at that temple. On top of that, Ephesus, there, there, there was sorcery and witchcraft and demonic things being practiced there. It was a stronghold for Satan. And with all of that opposition, the church was still able to keep evil out of it. All the anti-God rhetoric was not welcomed at the church of Ephesus. And Jesus said, good job. I see that you are really thriving and doing well in these areas. You know, that's assuring for us to know that Jesus sees our work. He sees when you are helping out your neighbor, when you are serving on a dream team. He sees everything that we do. Your labor is not done in vain. Jesus sees it all, and one day we're going to be rewarded for it. Nevertheless, for the church at Ephesus, despite all of their good deeds, they fell short in a certain area, and that was the area of love. And this is where the correction part of the letter comes in. He goes on in verse four, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned your love. Now, I find it both interesting and appropriate that John, the disciple who we've already established, is known for his emphasis on love, addresses the issue of love right up front. That tells us that everything hinges on love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, these three remain, faith, hope, love. And the greatest of these, he said, is love. In that same chapter, Paul said that I can do all these wonderful things, speak with the tongues of men and angels. I can labor for the Lord and work for him. But if I do it without love, it's nothing. It's meaningless. It's like a clanging gong. It means nothing without love. And listen, the most important love that we have is our love for Jesus. For the Ephesian church, they were doing good things, but they had this serious flaw. They had a blind spot. They had abandoned their first love. In pursuit of righteousness, they forgot about the righteous one. They cared more about rules than relationship. And here's what I pray is not said of us as a church, not said as of Benny Ferguson, that we care more about rules than relationship. Listen, there are churches around today that have good intentions, they have solid doctrine, but somewhere along the way, they've abandoned their passion for Jesus. 
They're dogmatic about their doctrine, but they're stagnant in their devotion. The Ephesian church, they abandoned their love. Notice, they didn't lose it. They left it. We could call this church the forgetful church. Other translations say, you have forsaken your love for me. Listen, sometimes we can get so caught up, busy doing, busy serving, well-intentioned things, caring about the work of the Lord and the details, but slowly over time, we end up abandoning our love for Jesus because we were so busy pursuing all that other stuff. Everything on the outside at this church probably looks great. Man, they were thriving. They were doing well in so many areas. In fact, it was probably a growing church. Everything on the outside looked great. But on the inside, they had lost their passion for Jesus. Love was fading. And can I tell you, church, this is the message. This is it. If you don't get anything here today, this is what today is all about. Coming back to our first love. Have we abandoned, have we left our love for Jesus? Or have we just fallen into a routine and I guess I have to and so out of duty, I'll force myself. Have we abandoned our love for Jesus? It's what it's all about. I have to check myself all the time. Do I love the songs of worship more than I do the God of worship? Do I love doing and serving more than loving and giving him my affection and my devotion? Listen, our labor for Jesus should never eclipse our love for Jesus. For the church at Ephesus, because they got so caught up in working for Jesus, they left their first love. I mean, even Jesus earlier, what did he say in the Gospels? What's the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not do for God. Love God. The love comes first. First we love, then we do. First love, then work. First love, then serve. Because I love him, because my heart is overflowing, my response is, now, what can I do for him? I serve out of the overflow of love. I don't serve to obtain his grace and his favor in my life. He's already given that to us. We already have his grace and favor. Therefore, I love him so much, I'm going to express that love that's connected to him. Then I'm going to go work for him. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to go to El Salvador. I'm going to go to Spain. I'm going to go to my school, my workplace, and love and serve and work for him. So he commends them. He corrects them. Next comes the counsel. Okay, so now what? How, what, what? What are we supposed to do now, Jesus? Verse five, he says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Then he goes on, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So he says, the first step And restoration is remember, is to remember. Remember what it felt like at first. 
remember where you used to be in your love for the Lord. Those of you that have been in love, do you remember what it was like when you first fell in love with that handsome guy or that pretty gal? Do you remember your, how it was with your first love with her and, and how giddy you felt when you'd be around her or him? I can remember it's been over 20 years now wanting to spend every available moment I could with this young lady named Kelly. And it would get so late and we'd be tired after hanging out, after going on a date together or whatever, and then she'd have to go home because boyfriend and girlfriends, we don't live together. That's another sermon. She'd have to go home. But even though I was so tired and we had just spent time together, I'd want to spend more time with her. So maybe I should call her, make sure she made it home all right, or make sure she made it into the house all right. And so then we'd talk for a while, and then it was time to get off the phone and time to say goodbye. No, you hang up first. <laughs> well, I don't want to hang up first. You hang up first. And, and then long after time it was to hang up, neither one of us would, and we'd just fall asleep on, on the phone, right? This was landline days, right, when we didn't have to worry about wasting our batteries on our phones. So sometimes I'll, I'll use this in marriage counseling. You know, husband and wife, they're having trouble. I'll ask the husband, husband, you go first. Why don't you tell me and tell her some of those fond memories when you first fell in love? Or wife, can you tell me some of those things years ago that would make you have butterflies in your stomach when you would meet that handsome guy as your love was young and blossoming? To keep the relationship moving forward, sometimes it's good for husbands and wives to go back, to remember, to recall those early memories together, those butterfly feelings and the excitement just about being together. Well, it's the same for our relationship with Jesus. Over time, the memory tends to fade. And so we forget that feeling when it was when we were set free, when we were delivered from sin. And we can forget that excitement when we first came to Jesus. Those almost 30 people that were baptized today, I pray that you never forget the feeling that you had today. You can always go back to this day. In fact, you just want to write it down in your Bible right now, okay? September 10, 2023, Calvary Church. I got baptized. I went public with my faith in Jesus. It was amazing. Because listen, tomorrow, later this week, the enemy, he's going to come. He's going to want to distract you, say, you just got caught up in feelings. That wasn't real. You just were emotional. But listen, you can go back to this day, this time, when you first fell in love with Jesus. May we never forget the thrill of excitement to have our sins forgiven, Amen. our past erased, and been given a brand new start, wanting to worship him and sing and get to church as often as those doors were open. Jesus says, remember, go back to that. Go back to this first love. You're overthinking it. You're making it too complicated. Just go back to those first feelings. You had it right the first time. Listen, I never want to get tired of praising the Lord. We just sang about it. 
over and over. May our song rise to the Lord. I don't want to grow beyond some of these things in my life. Spending time in his word, spending time in prayer, spending time in worship, spending time with other believers, spending time telling people about Jesus. Listen, Satan, he's really good at creating distractions for us. He'll, he'll, he'll get this thing going on over here. He'll create a sense of dissatisfaction for those first things, and, and he'll distract us. And, and Jesus says, no, no, no. Come back to those first things. Keep the candle burning. Right? Those first things are the things that keep the lamp going on its lampstand. Some of the sweetest scenes I have seen at restaurants, maybe, you, maybe you've seen them too, is when you see an elderly couple. I'm talking a, a couple that's married 50 years or 60 years, and you see them at the restaurant, and they're just gazing into each other's eyes. They're not distracted by their phones or whatever. They're holding hands. They're enjoying the meal together. Some of the sweetest scenes that I've seen here at church is when I see some of our elderly saints who still have a love and passion for Jesus Christ. And you see them as we're lifting up songs of praise. You see them worshiping and lifting their voice and lifting their hands because they haven't lost the awe and the wonder of their first love, Jesus Christ. Listen, it doesn't mean that we are abandoning the working and the serving and the laboring. No, it's just an automatic response because I love Jesus. So I go, I worship, I pray, I get in his word, I go back to my first love. It fills me up so that I can go and serve and labor and work for him. Listen, when I first fell in love with Kelly, I wanted to spend time with her and I wanted to talk about her. Remember that, right? I'd call mom and dad, hey, I gotta tell you about this new gal. It's the same with our love for Jesus. We love him so much that we wanna spend time with him and we wanna talk about him, right? When I remember, when I think of the goodness of Jesus and all that he's done for me, come on somebody, I can't help but my soul cry out, hallelujah, I love you Jesus. Thank you, you've been so good to me. Bless the name of the Lord now and forevermore. Amen. We hope today's message was a blessing to you. If you'd like to connect with us, please visit calvarymd.com and fill out the connection card in our website. We'd love to partner with you on your spiritual journey. We'll see you right back here next week.